Welcome to another episode of At Home With Leaders, this series that is part of the Leaders Performance Podcast. Its aim is to unearth stories and insights from the top people within high performance and what they're doing as sport returns to our lives and edges back to some sort of new normality. I'm Matthew Stone, Senior Product Manager here at the Leaders Performance Institute. And I'd like to say hello again to all the returning listeners and a big welcome to those who are listening for the first time. In a moment, we'll be diving into a conversation with Ben Cherrington, discussing his first few months in Pittsburgh player development systems, and what baseball is going to look like as it returns to play. All these topics and more have been very popular amongst our members at the moment, both at our events and in our virtual roundtables. In fact, two topics coming up on the virtual roundtable schedule are the future of talent and performance pathways and how can we better evaluate and debrief. If you'd like to find out more about our events, content, virtual learning and networking by becoming a member of the unrivaled network of the world's high-performance community, that spans all sports and all aspects of performance, then please visit leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. As always, it's a pleasure to have my co-host from California alongside me once again, founder and CEO of Games Group, it's Mr. Steve Gear. How is LA this morning, Steve? Matt, LA is doing great. Dodgers, you know, along with the Yankees and uh, Giants, uh, you know, kind of started off the uh, Major League Baseball season uh, last night. And uh, so the city's city's buzzing because they got one of its uh, favorite teams back in play. Uh, so we're really excited to uh, be talking to our guest today to hear about uh, his big start tonight. Absolutely. Well, our guest today is someone we've been very lucky enough to, uh, you know, have part of the member of the Performance Institute for a number of years now. Someone who has shared his pearls of wisdom on stage at previous events as general manager of the MLB's Pittsburgh Pirates is Ben Charrington. Good morning, Ben. How are you? Good morning, guys. Doing great. Thanks for having me on. And where in the world are you as we speak to you? I am in St. Louis. Uh, we arrived here from Pittsburgh last night. And uh, as Steve mentioned, uh, we, uh, there was a couple couple opening games last night in Major League Baseball. Most of us open tonight. So we're in St. Louis to face the Cardinals tonight and excited for it. Absolutely. And we, and we just, just said before jumping on air, it feels like a long time coming. Now, obviously, lockdown has been a bit of a different experience for everyone we've spoken to in the previous episodes, I think that's fair to say, Steve. But Ben, for you, how have you found it? And, and from a professional point of view, how have you focused your time? Yeah, well, I think being pretty new still to the role of, uh, you know, took the job in late November. So as you'd imagine, there's still a lot of learning to do. During the shutdown, personally, I found that it wasn't really more time for me personally, but it was, a, it was an opportunity to reallocate some time toward uh, really just learning more about the people that I'm working with now, the Pirates, about our, the systems that are in place, our players, et cetera, et cetera, where you might be spending time in April, May, and June, typically uh, really focused on managing rosters and reacting to games, et cetera, was able to re- reallocate some of that time towards uh, really just diving more into learning about what's in place and maybe where opportunities are to to get better. Ben, did you do anything uh, when like personally, like slightly different as uh, as COVID kind of unfolded? We were talking with Damian Kamali from Toulouse last week, and he said one of the things that he did to prepare for the role that COVID allowed him to do was actually physically prepare his body for the rigors of of the job, which. You know, it's something that we don't necessarily talk about too much, but this job's challenging, uh, both mentally and physically sometimes because of the amount of hours and the amount of effort that you put into uh, these high pressured roles. Curious if you if you had any additional or anything new personally that you did to prepare for the challenge of this new role with the Pirates. I'd agree on the, the physical aspect of the job and your point uh, makes a lot of sense. Um 
I'm not sure so much new. It, it, it may have been, I guess, fortunate timing in that when I took the job in November, uh, my wife and I were in the midst of training for a marathon. So it was sort of uh, by accident, maybe <laughs> preparing physically for the job. So we ended up running that marathon in January. And so maybe that gave me a bit of a foundation to get started. So I, I try to keep the miles in every week. But uh, as you both know, between job and family and homeschool and, you know, and, and, and just the new challenges of a new role like this, uh, not not quite as much time for running as I'd, as I'd like sometimes. But um, yeah, I, I would agree with Damien that it's an important aspect of being able to do this job well. And then, uh, so when it comes to the the club itself, is this a cultural rebuilding job? Is this a roster rebuilding job? Like what is more technical? Like, like what is, when you think of the culture of the, of and trying to put your imprint on the organization, um, I know from speaking with you in the past um, that the environment and culture means just a lot to you. And you're coming from a very strong culture um, at the Blue Jays. So how did you evaluate it when you were joining the team and how have you started to develop it now that you're nine months in? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the it's just from an outcome standpoint, the team won 69 games last year, finished in last place. You know, the bottom line is just, of course, that needs to improve. And we have to look for, you know, sort of every way to improve that. My personal opinion, and I think in particular in a place like Pittsburgh, that the improvement uh, that needs to happen will come uh, much more through the combined improvement from our players, sort of collective improvement from our players than it will from any single acquisition or transaction. So it doesn't mean that, of course, we need to acquire players also uh, over time. But if we think just about the sheer numbers of players who will play for the Pirates, if every one of our current players uh, improves by you know, half a win or, you know, whatever the measurement is you want to use, uh, that's going to add up to something much more, much greater and more powerful than any, likely any single player. So taking that a step further in terms of your question about culture, uh, I would say yes, that there is, we are really in the midst, uh, shifting our culture towards one that is player centric. And when I say that, I think that either really resonates with people or doesn't. But even for those it resonates with, uh, we're, we're all going to sort of think about that maybe a little bit differently. So really what we are in the middle of is really trying to define what that means for the Pirates. What's what it means for me and really where I, where, where I was informed mostly is just being around championship teams, uh, particularly in Boston. And you realize when you up close watching those teams and observing those teams that those teams when you when they're actually winning games in October which is what you have to do in major league baseball to win championships that the players individually and collectively quite literally are doing things above and beyond what anybody reasonably expected so if you think about it from a projection standpoint, you know, every you know, most professional teams now have robust projection systems to predict performance. And usually those involve some range of outcomes, right? There's a there's a top level, there's a bottom level, there's sort of a median to win, really win in, in baseball anyway. Players and collectively the team, by definition, have to be performing above the median, above that 50% projection. And then taking that even a step further, we also understand that just from a human performance or human development standpoint, that human beings are just capable of doing a lot of things that, again, maybe reason, reasonably or rationally, we, we don't always expect. 
So all that means a long way of saying that player centric for me really means that our job in baseball operations is to create the environment, provide the tools, provide, you know, sort of the gasoline for the car, so to speak. Uh, and then the player is driving the car. Player is uh, ultimately owning uh, his own improvement. And we are encouraging the player to keep reaching for something more rather than deciding what that player should look like. And that may sound obvious, but it is a, I would say, a subtle and important difference. So player centric for us is sort of really about moving towards the culture that is all about giving players an opportunity to, to really reach and figure out what they're capable of, as opposed to deciding what they're capable of and, and sort of directing them towards that. That's um, that's great. And you, you've touched on a bit of it already, but I know that you mentioned kind of four main pillars of focus when you when you joined the team back in, in November, and, and they were elite talent identification, acquisition, development and, and deployment. And I'd be really interested just to hear, you know, talk a little bit more about that and, and why they are our focuses for you and, and for the Pirates. Yeah. So first of all, I would say that, you know, there's nothing about those four activities that is new or groundbreaking, not just in baseball, but I would, I would, I would bet probably in most elite sports organizations, that's fun, that's basically in baseball operations. That's those are the four activities that we do in a simple term. We, you know, we we try to find players or evaluate players. We work to acquire the ones that we believe will help us, and we work to try to help those players develop. And then ultimately, we we work to try to deploy them in the most optimal ways. You know, putting them in the best position to succeed on the field and. There's nothing groundbreaking in that, so to speak. But what I felt was important to clearly define that is that for the Pirates, you know, we really, truly need to be great at all four of those. Um, there's sort of no room for being average at any one of them. We've got to pour, you know, a lot of resources and energy, work resources and energy into all four of those activities. And to your question, I think the, the, the biggest area of focus for us right now is really building out the team's of people focused on those four activities. And and then importantly, those teams, there would be some overlap where it, in sort of the team of teams concept, it's not just a distinct team uh, working on development, but there are some people in those teams who also are working on the, the evaluation part uh, or even the deployment part. Uh, so, for example, we take an example from the draft, which is certainly an important mechanism for baseball teams to acquire talent. Our draft is in June. Uh, we spend the year evaluating amateur players, uh, high school, junior college, college players. And of course, we focused on that. We have analysts focus on that. We have other uh, means of assessing amateur players. And there's a team of people doing that. But if there isn't a development lens represented in that team, then we are likely missing something in terms of uh, opportunity because we really want to understand not just what we're seeing in the amateur player, but what are the things that we feel most confident we can help that player improve on? Maybe what are the things that you know we think might be more static? Uh, so the team of teams is sort of focused on optimizing each of those activities, but also importantly, connecting each of those activities so there's some overlap there how do these pillars interlink there is a risk of friction i guess and how do you grease the wheel so to speak you know how do they interlink together the word i would keep kind of probably coming back to is trust you know we need to pursue sharing of information and collaboration between those folks between those teams 
but all that rests on trust and probably all have our own way of thinking about trust and how that's developed. But I think in order for the person in development to trust the person in scouting and vice versa and to sort of remove any potential friction, those people need to see each other as certainly competent and skilled, uh, need to see each other as, as people who ultimately have each other's uh, best interest at heart, the pirate's best interest at heart, in our case, player's best interest at heart. And then there's probably some emotional intelligent uh, component to that too, right? Where, you know, we sort of have, have, a, have a level of empathy for each other's roles and, you know, have a sense of timing, et cetera. So I think where friction kind of boils up is if you distill that down, in my experience anyway, there is usually something missing in trust underneath it. So we try to focus a lot on where the trust builds. It is a really interesting conversation when you start talking about like how you actually transfer knowledge about players, about your systems, and, and really like your main pillars of focus, you know, require like a really great through line of transfer of information. And and it sounds like yours is, is really highly dependent on like individuals trust, obviously trusting one another, but then also passing, like literally passing that information from scouting to player development, to coaching, um, to then player optimization when they're in games. And then also like directly down to the players as you're trying to essentially, you know, fuel their own ability to express their talent as an individual and as a group. And so when you think, when, when you think about that, like, do you have, aside from ensuring that you have the right people in place, um, which, which sounds like that's going to be really critical for you guys and making sure that they have trust throughout the entire organization. Do you have like a system that you, an actual, like, you know, a system where all that information is actually kept. And then, you know, cause what I've seen from organizations a lot of times is you have you know, your scouting information is in a scouting database and sits there and the coaches don't necessarily either get access or maybe fundamentally understand how to access that information. And so it really does come down to just having those conversations. But how are you thinking about trying to facilitate and, and or maybe potentially using technology to facilitate that you know, knowledge transfer about players, about your system throughout those four pillars and throughout all the layers of your organization? I think that's a really important question. And it's something we think about all the time and actively are thinking about right now. I think what you're what you're hitting on there is there there really is a risk in not just pursuing this team of teams concept or pursuing opportunities to collaborate, share information uh, more meaningfully, especially in a sport like baseball, where uh, there's just oceans of data coming in all the time. There is a risk of being down so many rabbit holes uh, at once that the information itself and the way it's presented is overwhelming to the point where it's not really actionable. And it's actually, there's a risk of actually getting in the way of performance as opposed to driving performance. And it reminds me of an article that was sent to me by a friend of both of yours, Angus Mugford, who I got I was lucky to get to know, the Blue Jays. And it was a simple article, but it was, uh, I think, called something like, are you a curator or are you a dumper? And the difference being that curator is sharing information in a way that really tells a story and brings you into that story and allows you to access it. Dumper is just dumping a lot of information, and that's where we get that overload and harder to do something with it. So in some cases, I would say that for some people in some roles, you know, they really do need the full 
sort of library of information in front of them. If you're in research and development or you're doing a certain project, well, you might actually need the full database in front of you. And it might be okay to have information from 10 different sources because that's just part of the job. But if I would say the closer to the field you are, if you're a player or a coach, coaching players, you probably want to have that information curated down into something that's pretty actionable. So that's just a constant focus for us and every team. The fuel I talked about, the fuel for the car really is taking the information and distilling it down to its most important pieces uh, for the ultimately the person who's going to make a decision on it, which ultimately is for us is happening most importantly closer to the field. And how important is it to to also give your coaches a glimpse into what the scouts, you know, how they how they see the world and what their what their role is? Uh, your player development folks uh, understanding, you know, what the coaches are really kind of going through. Because one of the things that I think some some excellent teams over the years have done is they actually, you know, they force some of their people in either coaching, scouting, player development, you know, high performance, whatever it is. And they force them to actually go work for a time in in another department and really like dig in and really kind of understand. Then, you know, you get that actual perspective of what a scout's going through. You get that actual perspective of what a what a coach is going through. I think the one that I think of that's probably like the most successful at doing this are, are the New England Patriots. You know, they take you know, a, a coach and they put them in scout and they, they force them to really focus on scouting for two years. Um, they take a offensive or an offensive coach, they put them on the defensive side of the ball. And then a couple of years later, they push him back over to the offensive side of the ball. And then eventually he's the offensive coordinator. Uh, so, you know, how important is cross training your, your, your people and, and, and what have you kind of, and how have you used that in the past as a way potentially to, uh, to make a difference inside your organization? Yeah, I think it is important. And, you know, two simple things that come from that are one is you get back to that word trust. And if we are sort of willing and have the opportunity to, to come into someone else's area, get our hands dirty, kind of fully understand what their job is, gain that perspective. Hopefully that is some uh, some some of the basis of, of trust building. And then, of course, there's actually intelligence and skill building that happens from that, too, where we can take back to a different job if we if we return to a different job. And then ultimately, just from a competitive standpoint, if you think about historically in baseball, I would argue that the emphasis on scouting, evaluating players started long before uh, the emphasis on helping players improve. So for a long time in baseball really was just let's set up the most robust identification system we can, evaluation system identify and recruit players. And then development really wasn't even development. It was just a minor league structure that this is where you go to play and then the cream rises to the top. That, and that, that's been going on for since Branch Rickey, right, for decades. At some point, teams realized, well, we can gain an advantage if we do really good, a better job at helping players train and improve. And so that's become a more of a focus, I would say, more in the last I don't know, 20, 30 years, and that's really sped up in the last 10 to 15 years. But now every team is focused on both of those things. So the advantage uh, likely lies in how well teams integrate those two activities, uh, with, where it's not enough to be good at one or the other. You really have to have both of those groups uh, kind of talking to each other and collaborating all the time. How do you know the system works? You know, What are the, what are the metrics you look at and you know, how do you set the foundations and, and track the progress and, and sense check as, as you go along? Yeah, this is another thing where I think historically baseball has not been very good at. And I'll, I'll speak to myself as a, as a guilty party in this. When I was I was overseeing the player development for the Red Sox in the 
early 2000s, early 2000s through mid 2000s. And I was really passionate about it, poured a ton of energy into it. We probably did some things well. We had some success at the big league level. But looking back, you know, the way we were measuring progress with players was really pretty subjective and probably arbitrary in some ways and frankly, probably confusing players, if I'm really being honest about it. So the good news is that the, as an industry and, and, and hopefully myself, uh, I've learned, you know, we learn a lot more about two things. We learn more about what great coaching and practice looks like. And some of that learning is from studying other sports and studying the principles of deliberate practice or wherever you are learning around practice and what that looks like. And then another piece of it is, of course, actually you know, measuring skill improvement. And the good news there for baseball is, like other sports, is that there's a lot of technology now that allows us to measure that more precisely. So if a goal for a pitcher is to improve command of the fastball, let's say, well, 20 years ago, that would be the goal, and the me- and measuring would simply be looked good, <laughs> or or didn't. Well, now we can measure that much more precisely. We know, we we know where the catcher's setting up. We know where the ball is supposed to go. We know how far away from the target the ball landed. Uh, we know the the trajectory of the ball from the pitcher's hand to the catcher's mitt. So we can measure that, but and, and we can measure that in practice. We can measure that in games. So over time, we can give the we should be able to give, give the pitcher in that case you know, just much more precise feedback. Now, again, the back to the, the curating the curation point, we can also get really messy if we're not careful because we can throw a lot of information at people and not necessarily, and we have, so we have to be careful about that, that we're, that we're really, the, that the feedback itself is not just accurate and precise, but, you know, kind of everything that that person needs and nothing they don't. Ben, you mentioned you mentioned the Red Sox there, so I want I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about kind of your evolution as a you know as an executive in Major League Baseball um, and an executive in sports. You know, you, you spent well over a, a decade, I think it was about fifteen years, right, in uh, in in the Boston in Boston, and then a couple of years with the Blue Jays, and now you're 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 jumping into this new Pittsburgh role, and hopefully you're there for for a, a good long while. Um, and bring that organization back to uh, to its glory days. You were a part of that with the Red Sox, and and you were in the in the Jays were in, in the mid or in the midst of of trying if, of getting back to you know organizational excellence as well. So how have um, you know just reflecting for a second? How has your voice changed as your roles inside of Major League Baseball, inside the you know the Red Sox, and then you know your role with the Jays? How has your voice changed in all these roles, and has your manner changed compared to uh, you know the leader that you were in Boston and the leader that you are now in the in, in Pittsburgh? I'll share how I hope it's changed, and I and I hope it continues to change because I hope I continue to learn and get better. I think the experience in Boston was just, it was an incredible experience, an incredible kind of time in our lives uh, to be part of something that was really exciting. You know, the 2004 breaking the curse and then the group that we had in baseball operations, we were all relatively young in our careers and it, it sort of felt like a startup and very entrepreneurial in a way. We were given a lot of opportunities to explore things, try things, pretty long leash in doing it. And during that time, we had some success. We had some tough times. Got a chance to work with Theo Epstein, who is our general manager at the time, was now with the Cubs. And Theo truly is a force of nature, uh, just a 
remarkable intellectual animal, you know, more different than really anyone I've been around. And I learned so much from him. I'm, I'm truly blessed to have time around him. So it was, it was a remarkable time, exciting, fun, learned a ton. I think when I got a chance to get the job after Theo left uh, for Chicago, uh, and maybe a lot of people would say this, but looking back, you know, I don't feel like I was as ready as I thought I was at the time. And Part of what happened, I think, if I'm, if I, when I reflect on that, is that, and maybe, maybe because of the success we had, but I, I allowed my, a lot of my energy to be kind of pursuing an outcome that night and then reacting to the outcome that night. And I suppose in baseball, that's going to happen to some degree for all of us because we have a game every night and the outcomes are important. You know, we want to win more than we lose. That's the job. But I think reflecting on that, I feel like I probably allowed too much energy on that, not enough to the things that actually were making me a more successful leader in the first place or making the Red Sox successful. And that is really doubling down on learning and process and just finding the next advantage. So leaving there, having, a you know, really the opportunity of the Blue Jays for three years was incredible for me. And thanks to Mark and Ross for giving me the opportunity to do this really as sort of a reset on learning and really diving back into learning. And not that I ever didn't want to learn, but the time as GM in Boston just, you know, maybe didn't give me, didn't leave as much time for it or I didn't make enough time for it. So the time in, time in Toronto was really important. So I think where I've come into Pittsburgh, I hope, is through maturity or experience or whatever the reason, or the learning from Toronto, whatever the reasons are, you know, I've, I'm really trying to focus my energy uh, much more on uh, every day waking up, just thinking about how can I help people get better? How can I find ways to help, you know, move a conversation along, improve uh, a piece of our process? help someone react to a process more productively, really trying to focus my energy there more than on outcomes. It doesn't mean we're not aware of the outcomes. Of course, we have to be aware of the outcomes. The outcomes are feedback. We've got to be, uh, we've got to be listening to that feedback as a, as a part of how we get better. So it's always going to be a balance, but I would say probably trying to shift my energy a little bit away from outcomes and more towards, you know, that, that learning and helping other people learn and just helping other people be better. Staying on the cities for a moment, just for a moment, I'm curious about your impressions on this thought. A lot of times, you know, historic franchises in leagues, um, it feels like the team sometimes takes on the personality of the city and the region uh, or, or the region and city take on the personality of the team. I, I think you saw that a little bit in Boston, especially as the curse was broken. It, such a, it was such an in, interesting entanglement between the, you know, the New England corridor, all the fa- Red Sox nation, and how that team really kind of felt like it was really like the resurgence of Boston sports. And it feels like, you know, the Patriots very, very successful over the last, you know, two decades. But it really felt like all of it kind of like resonated and kind of like finalized in, uh, with, with the Red Sox uh, turning it around. And you're going to another storied uh, region with, uh, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers and then the Bucks and the Pirates. And the Pirates are a beloved team in that region. I'm curious, like, what's your, what's your impressions on on your experience reflecting how, you know, the community really affected the work you were doing in Boston? And do you see that dynamic potentially unfolding in Pittsburgh as well? I think so. I think you're right. I think I think teams do sort of they, they are a part of the community where they reside in, right? So there are things about the Red Sox that would reflect, you know, 
just residing in Boston or residing in New England, likewise for the Pirates. One of the things that's interesting, you know, been here for a few months now, and Pirates fans want their team to win, of course, like every every team, every every fan of every team. But if you sort of listen to the language that they use in providing me feedback or us feedback, whether, you know, you get, get emails from fans or run into folks at events or done, did some town hall stuff over the winter. And there's words that pop out that, and consistently. And, and, in, and in Pittsburgh, I hear a lot about uh, effort, honesty, playing the game the right way, fundamentals, even more detailed, like, you know, specific aspects of base running and defensive play. Uh, where there really is an appreciation for just sort of the the blue collar elements of the game. And of course, you know, that's probably not surprising if you think about Pittsburgh and the history of the city and sort of how the city has been shaped over time. So ultimately, our fan still wants to win at the end of the day. But there are those other uh, sort of characteristics that they're looking for also. And so as we are building a winner, we're also trying to earn trust, back to that word, uh, with our fans. And it's important to listen to listen to that and understand the things that will help them trust us. When it comes to this season, I'm really curious. Like, what what does success look like um, after 60 games for the Pirates uh, at, at the end of uh, you know at the end of this this mad sprint that we're all that you guys are getting ready to embark on um, here in just a few hours? What what does success look like for you? Yeah, at the major league level, it will be two things. I would say it would be really most importantly, it'll be seeing a new major league coaching staff, a new major league really staff period, having helped us build a, a more effective, more optimal support environment for our major league players. And ultimately that manifest in player improvement and how, how major league players are accessing information, how major major our major league players are improving skills. Of course, we can measure that in games. And of course, we also know that's not a straight line. It's not, that usually is not a linear thing. And there are twists and turns and bumps in the road. But over time, uh, we need to see the arc of improvement. And, and a big part of that will be uh, making sure that we are coaching and supporting our players at the major league level in the most optimal way. And that's uh, was a primary focus for me last offseason. We hired a new manager, a new coaching staff, et cetera. Uh, and that's that's been their focus ever since. More broadly, the simple, maybe boring answer is back to those four activities. Uh, we want to be in a stronger position by the end of 2020 to really be great at evaluating in, in every space, amateur, international, professional. We want to be better at acquiring, better at development, ultimately better at deployment. And more critical to that is just you know, really making sure that not only do we have the people in place. I, I'm confident we already have a lot of the people in place to do that. We may need more over time to have the people in place, but then we are working towards those teams uh, that I described and that the trust is uh, being built amongst those teams. And adapting to, you know, that new environment of, of, of 60 games, not not 162, you know, how, how have you approached that? How have you approached all these new things really? I know we haven't touched on maybe COVID specifically in the lockdown, but a lot of new ed- yeah, adapting to new surroundings and adapting to new rules and, and, and structures. Um, how have you approached that you know, yourself as, as a leader of the organization? But you know, how how's the, how's the clubhouse approached that as well? Yeah, well, I think there's sort of a natural sense of urgency that comes from it. We first learned it was going to be 60 games and not 162. So 
you know, right away, you know, you, you can do that quickly. Every game is worth close to three in, you know, in a normal year. So a three-game winning streak or a three-game losing streak in a 162-game season, those just happen. Of course, you'd rather have the three-game winning streak, but you're not going to, you're not going to, you're hopefully not reacting too much from a three-game losing streak. Well, in a 60-game season, <laughs> those carry more weight. So, okay. uh, so the truth is, I don't know how we're, you know, we're, this is new for all of us, how not just we're going to react to that, but how every team's going to react to that. On top of that, we learned yesterday that the playoff format has changed. So now instead of 10 teams in the playoffs, there's 16. So that's that's more than 50% of the of all teams will be in the playoffs this year. So that that definitely changes the calculus uh, for teams in terms of just expectations and um, and and it may change it may change decision making during the season. Time will tell. We'll see on that. So our trade deadline is usually on July 31st. This year it'll be on August 31st. And in theory, with more teams having a realistic chance to get into the postseason, you know, we may see differences in how in, in how teams approach transactions this year. I'm not not, not sure. But certainly there's get there's there's more, I'm sure not for the Pirates, but for every team there's a sense of urgency. Last question, Ben, but I think before we kind of jump into a few uh you uh, kind of round off um, standard ones that we've been we've been talking with some of our guests about. You know, when it when it comes to adapting um, on a day in day out basis, you know, you, you're a very good communicator. And how important has it been in surrounding yourself with other really good communicators who can process information very fast and then and then also distill that out to the rest of the organization? We were talking with Howie Roseman last. Uh, last week. And he, he made the point that, you know, making sure that you're not only communicating with your level of the organization, but throughout the entire level of organization has been key to, to their ability to handle um, some of the fluidity of information flow in the NFL. How, how, uh, how important has that been for you guys and, and how are you handling it? I'd say really important. I, you know, elite communication feels more important than ever, maybe partly because of how organizations have evolved, but certainly right now in the middle of a pandemic where we're working, you know, just in a different environment, communication becomes so important. And as you guys know, that whether or not I'm a good communicator, I certainly need to focus on that every day, but I'm never going to be enough. You know, we need lots of good communicators, elite communicators, certainly at the leadership level. That's an important part of the screening for us, certainly was when we hired our manager, Derek Shelton, who is also new to the job, has never done the job. And so he's getting ready for his first game tonight as manager in a, in a much different environment than he was expecting. First time he's done the job. And, you know, I've been, I've been really impressed with how well he's communicated through this time and the adjustments he's had to make every day in order to communicate effectively with our players, with our staff throughout the organization. So, yeah, we've got to lean into great communication every day. Well, thank you very much, Ben. I re- really appreciate this today. Um, one, one more question for you. Um, you're coming from a place that describes its, uh, itself as a learning environment. And I know you are a, you know, you talked about Theo's uh, intellectual ca- capacity, um, and, and we all know that you have it as well. So I'm curious, like over the last couple months, uh, what's what's the best thing you've fed your brain outside of uh, baseball? You know, has there been a good book, a good uh, podcast or something, something that you've listened to or something that's kind of really resonated with you and, and helped you kind of prepare yourself and, and or your staff uh, during this time? Well, I did read a, a book recently that just completely blew my mind called The New Jim Crow. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's by yeah. Michelle Alexander and 
It's actually recommended to me by one of our players. We were having a conversation about racial justice in the wake of George Floyd and just completely blew my mind and would recommend it to every everyone. It's it's basically about the expansion of the prison system and criminalization of, of drug use in the States and what that's what that's done. And I would use that as the example because um, although it's not specific relates to baseball. It certainly relates to, for someone who looks like me, uh, increasing my awareness of the experience of people who do not look like me. And in a baseball environment, of course, we've got lots of different people from lots of different places and who look much different colors of skin from different all over the world. And, and we're, if we're really trying to build trust, which is such an important thing, we've got to be able to empathize and understand different people's experiences. So that book was a, a big help for me. Yeah, without a doubt, and, and and I've read that one. It's a it's, it's a terrific read, and and you're right. There are a lot of things that you take from that that all of a sudden give you a, a much better perspective of what uh, what a lot of our friends and and coworkers and colleagues kind of go through. So, well, Ben, that was brilliant. Um, thank you very much. You know, as always, really enjoy talking with you. Appreciate your insight and time. Uh, thanks for jumping on here and chatting with us. You know, please stay safe and good luck with uh, the weeks uh, and months ahead. But more importantly, good luck with tonight um, against the Cardinals. Uh, and Matt, you know, um, you know, always a pleasure to talk with you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Steve. Always great to catch up, Ben. It feels like a, an absolute age since I saw you last in in Chicago. I think it was. Hopefully, it won't be too long till the next time. But yeah, send my best to the to the great team of people you have in Pittsburgh, and you take care and, and best of luck with the with the match tonight and the, the weeks months ahead. Really enjoyed it, guys. I, I do hope that circumstances allow for a, a, a more formal leaders event at some point because they're so much fun. Uh, but in the meantime, we, we all appreciate you helping us continue to learn. That's it for another episode. But if you've enjoyed these podcasts, then you can find many more like this on the Leaders Content Hub, as well as on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred platform. Check us out at leaders underscore insight on Twitter as well. Post all our content on there as well. Ben and his team in Pittsburgh have just renewed their yearly membership with us at the Leaders Performance Institute. If you want to do the same and join them in accessing the content, virtual learning, events, and also engage with over 700 members from 150 teams in 25 countries and 20 sports worldwide, then head over to leadersandsport.com forward slash performance to learn more about the home of Total High Performance. Once again, thank you to the team behind the team for helping me pull this together, in particular to John Porch for providing me with some great thoughts and questions to delve into with Ben this time round. We hope you're all enjoying these conversations because we're certainly enjoying having them. Until next time, stay safe and keep thinking. Speak soon.